Well, good morning. How's everyone today? Good? Yeah? Some people said great. Awesome. Uh, my name is Jordan. I'm the adult ministry pastor here at Soul Sanctuary. And uh, honestly, I'm just looking forward to sharing this morning as we jump back into the book of Matthew and continue our series through uh, the gospel of Matthew and all that it has to say for us. And this morning, uh, we've titled the life lesson, Who Do You Say That I Am? And so we're going to be looking at that portion of scripture where Jesus, uh, where, sorry, where Peter confesses who Christ is. But we're going to be talking about it from an angle of how does that affect us? How is that question still relevant for us today? And uh, I, I think we're going to find that this has a lot of practical application for us this morning. And so let me start just by um, starting with a silly story. Um, have you ever planned something like special or exciting for somebody? And you, you were looking forward to it. Uh, you, you did it because you, you were hoping to get a certain type of response only to realize that it didn't quite go as you expected. Anyone ever done this before? Anyone? I think we've all been there, right? Uh, hopefully not yesterday. But, you know, I think we've all been here at some point in our lives. I know for sure I've experienced this. And I thought this past week about an old story uh, when we were about 10 or 11 years old and we were on holidays and we often went and visited our grandparents and my cousin was there and he was about our age as well. And I remember uh, we got there late because driving from Thompson to South, you usually arrive around midnight, one in the morning if you leave after work at four. And I remember us kind of sitting there uh, thinking to ourselves, we woke up at 5 a.m. for some reason, uh, the kids did. And we thought to ourselves, what a great idea it would be to make breakfast for all the adults, uh, my grandparents, my uncle and aunt, and my parents. And uh, so we started making food, 5 a.m. and all. Uh, started, and you know, this is like a 10, 11 year old breakfast, right? So you're not even waking up for like hot eggs and bacon and pancakes here. You're getting like toast cereal and badly cut fruit. That's kind of what they're going to be getting when they wake up in the morning. And I remember we made breakfast for them. And at about 10 to 6, my cousin thought it would be a great idea to get everyone up. And we need to find something loud in order to wake them up with. And, the, and my, they were into horse racing, my grandparents. And they had these cowbells sitting in the living room. And I remember my cousin grabbed one and just started ringing it as loud as he could, yelling, you know, breakfast bell, breakfast bell, right at 10 to 6 a.m. And we were expecting everyone just to be grateful and thankful and excited to come and eat. And we got the opposite response, okay? They were not impressed with us. In fact, I can still remember my grandparents asking me, are you guys crazy? Like, they literally asked us that question, waking them up after probably four or five hours of sleep for breakfast. And uh, my parents kind of warmed up to it after a while. And, you know, they, they realized we tried to do something cute for them. But we, we, we thought for sure we were going to get, like, you know, probably go to the mall, probably a new video game that day. It was just going to work out in our favor because we made breakfast. We were expecting it to go one way, and it went a completely different way than we expected. I start with that because our portion this morning is going to start off with something that's amazing, that appears to be something just great that happens. And then it's going to take almost a left turn, if you will. And it's going to be, whoa, I didn't expect that to happen. I didn't expect it to go that way. And so let's dive into it this morning. Peter is going to have a moment here in the gospel where he experiences something amazing but then shortly after, he's going to experience a, well, I didn't see that coming moment. So Matthew chapter 16, if you have your Bibles, your phones, if you want to just look to the screen, it's up there. Let's read the text this morning. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. 
Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So we have this amazing moment happen here with Peter. A lot of nice things being said about him. Let's continue. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And so Jesus takes his disciples out. This is what's happening in this passage. And he wants to be alone, and he takes them outside of Israel. And they're in this place called Caesarea Philippi, which was a pagan city to the core. It was filled with temples to various gods. There was all sorts of idol worshiping that happened in this place. It was built around the worship at this point of Caesar, who was king at the time, and renamed after him. And his son Philippi, Philip, sorry, was the governor um, at this time of the city. And so Jesus brings his disciples out to this area, and we have to ask ourselves the question, why would Jesus come here for the illumination of his identity as their king? And I think he comes here because he's saying to the crowds, and he's saying to his disciples at this moment, that he is the king and not simply a king. That he is the son of God and not simply a son of God. Jesus is the reality of which all the other kings and gods at this moment are the parody. And something is being declared about him right now. And so he's near a pagan city and he's asking, who do the people say that I am? What's the word on this street? And at some point, I think, each one of us has to wrestle with this question as well. We have to wrestle with these two thoughts. Who do people say that Jesus is? But then perhaps more importantly, who do we say he is? Who do you say that I am? And so the first thought I want us to look at, we're going to look at three questions this morning. And the first question is just that. Who do, they, who, do, who do they say I am? Who do they say I am? What does culture at the time say about Jesus? And in that passage, we saw that they had all sorts of ideas. Some really good ones. Some thought he was Elijah. Some thought uh, John the Baptist. Others thought a prophet. Um, there were some throughout Scripture that thought he was a drunkard, that thought that he, you know, he was hanging out with the wrong people, that he was a glutton, and he was called all sorts of other things by the culture around him. And each one of us, I think, if we're honest with ourselves has a picture in our minds of who Jesus is, what he looks like, who he's for, who he's against. Each culture has created their own version, I believe, of what Jesus would look like to them. And I think it's easy for us to want to develop this idea that God must be like us. He must think like us. He must be for us over other people. 
And so it's easy, I think, and sometimes we don't even realize that we're doing this, but I think it's easy sometimes for us to project our own culture or our own world on our image of Jesus. And so who do they say I am? What about our culture? How have we created Jesus sometimes to conform more to our our own ideals, our own expectations, our own set of comforts? How have we done this? Well, let me show you a couple pictures this morning in different ways, different Jesuses that I think have been created. Here's a picture of what we call angry Jesus, okay? This is Jesus who's just always upset, always mad, always on your case, right? Make sure that you do this, you say your prayers before bed, right? And he's always angry at you. He never gives you a break. He's just always looking at you and seeing all the bad that you've done and, uh, and, and making sure that you get punished. Anyone ever experienced or been taught this kind of Jesus before in your background, unfortunately? That God's just always mad and he just never gives you a break. So we have angry Jesus. Secondly, we have what I call slot machine Jesus, Right? And, and, and this Jesus just wants to give you everything, right? The total payouts, big cash, right? Uh, slot machine Jesus, you just put in a deposit, pull the lever, and you get a huge return. And unfortunately, sometimes, and in some places, this has been projected onto the person of Jesus. Uh, thirdly, uh, anyone want to guess what Jesus this is? Anyone? Hipster, there you go, you got it. Yeah, this is hipster Jesus, right? And, uh, you know, hipster Jesus is that Jesus who, you know, if you shop at box stores, you're out, which would mean I'm out, right? But don't worry, he still thinks you're cool, okay, in case you're wondering this morning. But this would be kind of like the hipster Jesus who's about a certain kind of crowd, a certain kind of aesthetic, a certain kind of way. Uh, Let's get another one here. We'll talk about Jesus the coach, right, who just always wants to kind of build you up and give you good ideas and send you on your way and uh, and, and, and not necessarily punishing you, but just always pushing you forward. Uh, We got nationalistic Jesus. And this is Jesus who's about a certain country or a certain nation, and, and that's who he cares about. And that's whose side he's on. And we know this for sure, right? Okay, maybe not. Maybe we don't know that. But there is nationalistic Jesus. We see that around. We see some people who just assume that Jesus is on our side and no one else's. Uh, militaristic Jesus. This is the Jesus who, you know, is violent and who, who calls us to do things like this. And, and, and some people have developed an image of Jesus where this wouldn't be too far off. And finally, one, one more slide. Uh, just culture Jesus. Cultures all over the world have depicted Jesus into their own culture, and really according to their own race and according to their own image. I remember our professor in Bible college showed us about 15 pictures of Jesus depicted in different cultures. And he asked us, after he showed us them all, if Jesus were to look like one of these people, would you still love him as much? And it was a biting question, because I think what he was doing was he was getting to the heart of our prejudices, that we want Jesus to look like us. And um, each culture has developed a picture of what Jesus perhaps could look like. And so I asked the question this morning to us as a church, if Jesus acted different than you, if he thought differently than you think, if he prioritized differently than you, if he sees people differently than you see them, would you still love him? And would you still desire to follow him? And would you be okay with laying down your agenda and getting behind his agenda? Because we could all depict Jesus in our own way. And this is important because I believe in, with all my heart that our view of God is so important. How we view God is so important to everything that we do. A.W. Tozer said it like this. He said, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. 
Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes to mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Think about that for a second. You see, if that's true, that says a lot about us and who we are. Because what you think about God will shape the destiny of your life because we become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. And so this is crucial for us. We become what we behold in our image of God, whether we're aware of it or not. And this is important for us to have a good understanding of who God is because two things, our view of God will shape how we live for him but our view of God will also shape how we treat one another. And it's going to have a huge bearing on how we live for him and in this world among each other. Our view of Jesus is so important because if our view of him is misguided, if it's distorted, if it's off, then the more devoted we are to that wrong picture of God, the worse off we're going to be in trying to live for him and serve him. You see, the more off you are in your image of who God is, and if you're, if you're that devoted to it, the more devoted you are, the worse off that that will be for you in practice and in service to the world around you. You see, if our view of Jesus is that he simply only cares about us and our needs, then we likely as well will fall into that same category of caring about ourselves and caring about our own needs. Are you tracking with me this morning on where we're going here? Think about the many expressions of faith about God in our world. Each person, many people, have an answer to the question, who is God to you? And there are so many expressions of faith in God and what they could lead to and how that can be lived out. Let me give you some examples. The person who carries out hate crimes in the name of religious zeal, which can result in all sorts of atrocity, is often done in the name of God. The prosperity gospel preacher, you know, who's getting out of his Rolls Royce and saying that riches is a sign of people who obey God, that's, uh, that, 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 that's living out what you believe about God. The, the Westboro Baptist picketers who are standing outside telling people how much God hates them and how angry he is with them is another example. The man sacrificing another man in the name of religious duty all goes back to that. The sniper who prays to God before taking a shot is a reflection of what he thinks about God. The peace activist who risks their life to stop another war because they take Jesus' teachings on enemy love seriously is an example. The singer who stands up at the Grammys and thanks God for their song and their award, which coincidentally is about a one-night stand, is reflective of an understanding of God. The nun who gives up what we call a normal life in order to live in service and in poverty for others is another example and to work for social change. All of these men, all of these women, which I've just described, do what they do and are who they are because of what they believe about God. And so the answer to that question cannot be minimized. It is absolutely vital. It is absolutely important to how we are going to live. Clearly, what we think about God matters. Who God is has profound implications for who we are and who we will be in this world. And the problem in all of this 
is that here's what often happens, is that we often end up with a God who, interestingly enough, looks an awful lot like we do. And we often end up with a God who thinks like we do and who wants what we want. And the saying goes that in the beginning, you know, God created man in his own image. And then, you know, man being a gentleman returned the favor, right? And uh, there's this natural inclination sometimes. There's this human bent in our hearts that sometimes we want to make God in our own image. And you know that you've done this. Here's how you'd know if you've done this, is that if, if God seems to agree with you on everything and he's interested in what you're interested in, and he, you know, he votes like you, and he talks like you, and he, he hates the people you hate, and he, if you're passionate about something, then so is he, right? And above all, you guys, he's tame. If God is tame, you know, he, 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 you never get mad at him, or you never get challenged by him, or you never get rebuked by him, or what he says never surprises you, because he becomes controllable after a while, after we create him. Often what we believe about God says more about us than it does about him. I read this past week, this quote, our theology is often like a mirror to the soul. It shows us what's deep inside of us. Theology is simply study of God. And so we don't always see things as they are, but perhaps I would argue this morning it's easy for our natural inclination to see things as we are in this pursuit of Jesus. And so in our tendency to want to control things or be comfortable with things, perhaps we unfairly and often unconsciously inflict this on our understanding of who God is. Maybe we don't do it with this in mind. Maybe we're not thinking about it when we do it, but maybe subconsciously we sometimes have an ability to do this. One of the writers in the books that I was reading through this past week says this. He said, The most ancient primal temptation going all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden is to decide for ourselves what God is like and whether we should live into his vision of human flourishing or come up with our own vision. Also, we will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so this isn't a new problem that we're facing. When Jesus asked this question, he wasn't talking about something that was new, but this existed right from the beginning. In fact, this is where our roots are in the biblical story. This has been something that humans have wrestled with right from the garden, right from the beginning, right from the start. I've often said that Jesus that you see very much determines the kind of Christian that you're going to be. And if that is true, if our understanding of God is that important, then we must make sure that we see Jesus not just for what people say he is, or maybe even more important, who we wish or hope he was, but we need to see Jesus for who he is. And this is revealed to us as we read in the scriptures. And so we talked about who do they say I am. Let me ask you another question this morning. And this is the important one for you today. Who do you say that I am? The same question that Peter, sorry, that Jesus posed to Peter. Well, who do you say? You've heard what culture says. You've heard what the world around you says. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter has this amazing moment where he recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that we'd hoped for, that Jesus is God with us. And he confesses. And, you know, he says, this is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. This is the one that we've waited for. And then Jesus asks him the question, who do you say I am? When he asks him that question, he answers, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. And Peter wasn't wrong. And Jesus commends him for this. 
And the scriptures confirm this, that if we want to see what God is like, if you want to get a picture of God in your heart, you need to clearly look towards the person of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, it says it like this, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Colossians 1.15 says it like this. Jesus, talking about Jesus, he is the image of the invincible God, the firstborn over all creations. In John chapter 5, the religious teachers were having such a tough time with Jesus claiming that he was the son of God, and Jesus said this to them. He said, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And so Jesus is clearly saying to them, you guys study the scriptures. You think that you have all this knowledge and power, but you're failing to realize that all this stuff is actually pointing towards me. And, and, and Jesus is coming, his coming. And so Peter recognizes this, and Peter confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. Peter literally called him, if you want to look into the original language, literally called him the anointed one the anointed one, or the king to end all kings, the king to put everything right. And Peter gets it, and he's like, in this moment, it's like this, oh my gosh, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. There was this illumination moment that happened in this portion. And Jesus commends him for it and says lots of nice things about him if you keep on reading. And not only does Peter confess that Jesus is the Christ and the Messiah, but then Jesus commends him and reinforcing his name as the rock and on whom Jesus will build his church on the earth. And there's a great amount of privilege. There's a great amount of responsibility and compliment that's going on here. And Jesus is just saying things that to Peter's mind must be, oh my goodness, this is just going to be amazing what I get to do here for God. Wow, he's put me basically as his number two here. But then Jesus warns them, after they have this moment, Jesus warns them not to tell anyone about him. And have you ever read that before and thought, what's up with that, right? Like, why would Jesus, all of a sudden, we have this illumination moment, you are the Messiah, the Christ, Son of the living God, and uh, this is something the world needs to know, but then Jesus is saying, okay, but be quiet, don't tell anyone about it, right? And so we, we sometimes have to ask ourselves, why would Jesus warn them not to do that? Um, a couple reasons why that would be. You have to understand that in this culture, the Messiah was a political title just as much as it was a spiritual title. And in fact, in the first century, they wouldn't have even have separated the two like we do. And so Christ means king. And that's why it's a secret, because to claim that you're a king in a world that already has one, there's a word for that. We call it treason. And so it would be like walking into the Vatican tomorrow and claiming you're the Pope. It's not a good idea. Please don't try it if you're headed that way, okay? I don't want to see anyone get in trouble. But, you know, once the cat was out of the bag, if I could say it like that, and the world was knowing that Jesus was the Messiah, there were two options at, at that point. It was either revolution or execution. Uh, there was no middle ground when you made a claim like that. And so the time had not yet come for Jesus to reveal this to the whole world. And so he tells the guys, okay, okay keep quiet about this for a bit. We're going we're gonna, we're gonna to let this out soon but just hold on to it. Secondly, the vast majority of people thought the coming Messiah was going to come as a warrior and was going to come as somebody who would crush Rome and would crush their enemies, one who would literally start a war with Rome and uh, crush the empire and annihilate the pagans, um, i.e. the, the non-Jewish people of the world. 
and, and usher in like this world of Israeli global domination. That's what people expected at the time of Messiah. They were waiting for Messiah to come in and just do a great victory for them as a people. And this is how people in Jesus' time thought about the coming Messiah. And so right after Peter makes this great confession that you are the Messiah, Jesus has to in turn say to him, yes, but hold on. Because I'm not the kind of Messiah that you are expecting. And don't try to conform me into that image that you're expecting. Which brings us to our final question that we're going to ask this morning. Is who do you want Jesus to be? Who do you want Jesus to be? Are you, are you content with Jesus as he is? Or do we ever sometimes wish he was a little bit more like we'd hoped. And I'm going to tell you that the crowd in this day definitely felt that way. In the same way that you can't teach a child addition, subtraction, multiplication, and, 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 and division before they first learn numbers, you cannot teach this next part until the disciples know clearly that he is the Messiah. And so this was an unheard of idea in the first century. Very few, if any, connected the Messiah with one who would suffer and be put to death. This was not something that they expected. This was not something they were hoping for. This was not something that would make anybody excited. Very few people had connected the suffering servant with the Messiah, but in Jesus, the Messiah and the suffering servant are one in the same. Which is why Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him and saying, no, Lord, this should never happen to you. These things that you're talking about, this won't happen to you. You're Messiah. You're above this. This is not the way it's going to play out. This is not the way it's going to go down. You see, Peter had grown up in a culture as a child hearing that the Messiah would rule, not hearing that the Messiah would suffer and that the Messiah would die. And so he opposes this notion that Jesus would suffer and be put to death, going as far to rebuke the idea that such a thing would ever occur. And Jesus, who just commended him, remember that moment that was really good and then it takes a left turn that I talked about as we started today? And you're like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that to happen. I, I, didn't, I didn't foresee that coming. Jesus, who just commended him, Peter rebukes him and Jesus pulls him aside and says to him, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but rather the concerns of men. And get behind me, Satan, is what Jesus said to Peter that day, which would likely top the list of things that you would not want to hear the Son of God call you, right? Um, it's probably not something anyone was hoping for. Let's be honest here, okay? Jesus tells him, get behind me, meaning that, Peter, you're actually standing in my way here. You're standing in my way. You're in opposition, Peter, to God's will, the Father's will for my life. Jesus isn't necessarily calling Peter satanic in that he's possessed or something like that, but he's saying that in this moment, he's actually acting like Satan because he is tempting Jesus to avoid the cross. And he's tempting Jesus to abandon his father's purpose and his father's will for his life. Now, we're going through the book of Matthew. Remember in chapter 4, I know it was a while ago, but Jesus was tempted for 40 days, right? And 40 nights in the desert. And he was tempted by the devil. And when he was tempted there, he was tempted not to go the way of the cross, not to go the way of suffering, 
But to go the way of fame, to go the way of wealth, to go the way of ultimate power over everything, and all of that. And so this is something that Jesus had experienced before. And now Peter is also, without even really knowing it, saying something that is really, you know, tempting Jesus, standing in his way, tempting him to avoid the cross here. He's tempting Jesus to avoid his calling on his life, which is the cross. That was the whole purpose. And in some ways, I think we can cut Peter some slack here, I would think, right? You know, perhaps this idea outraged him, or maybe he was concerned for his friend and his teacher. Like, you know, think about your close friend saying this to you. You'd probably grab them and say, never. That's never going to happen. And that's likely some of the reason why Peter did that as well. But one thing is for sure, it was because he was not seeing Jesus clearly. He was seeing Jesus for who he wanted him to be and not necessarily for who Jesus himself was claiming to be. He knows Jesus is Messiah, but in his mind, that's not how Messiah is supposed to be. And so Peter's distortion of who Jesus is is based on three things, and here they are. Number one, a misreading of the scriptures. He's picking and choosing. If you would read through the prophets, you would see different portions that talk about a suffering servant. You would see portions that talk about that this is, in fact, how it's going to play out. Read through Isaiah. Start in chapter 51. Go to chapter 56. You're going to read portions that actually point towards this, but they had a reading of the scriptures that was comfortable for them. Secondly, Peter had this um, misguided ambition of the heart here happening. Think about it. Peter wanted Jesus to be a certain kind of Messiah. You know, perhaps if Jesus was going to defeat Rome, this was going to work out great for Peter. Jesus just said, you're the rock on whom this church I'm going to build. Maybe he'd be second in command. Maybe Peter thought, I'm going to be vice president here before you know it. A part of this great and amazing movement that's about to happen. And so Peter had a vested interest in Jesus not being who he actually was. This could actually work out to benefit his ambition. And third, third, thirdly, Another thing that affected Peter's view of Jesus was his worldview. This worldview that he was born into, this worldview that, you know, how you see the world is each one of us sees the world through a pair of glasses, um, not what you look at, but often what you look through in order to interpret things. And Peter had this same issue. And we have to ask ourselves the questions about our own worldview. What is it that shapes and frames and colors your view of the world when you look at things? You see, Peter's worldview was Messiah was a warrior and that Messiah was going to come back and take the throne back by force. And so everything that he'd read, everything that he looked at was probably filtered through that lens. And therefore, he had this distorted view and when Jesus claimed who he was, he had a tough time to accept it. And so Peter's vision of Jesus was off, so much so that he was literally in opposition to Jesus in this moment. And it's amazing when you think about that, that he just had this amazing confession illumination moment. And then, you know, get behind me, Satan, right? It's just like, where did that happen? You know, just like Peter, we are disciples of Jesus. And we have to ask ourselves the question this morning when we read through a portion like this, are we any better than Peter? No, I think I am, but what about you, right? Like, are, are anyone, I'm kidding, I'm joking. But are we any better than Peter when we look at this? The truth is, absolutely not. None of us are. You know, we aren't any better than Peter. And we all have a vision in our hearts of who Jesus is. 
We all see Jesus in a certain way. And are we ever uncomfortable with Jesus? Do we ever feel like we have to clean him up or give him kind of a makeover in order to present him to people? Because some stuff's just a little too rough around the edges for us. Like we have to talk away the things that he says which kind of make us uncomfortable. And we have to start explaining things away when Jesus sometimes just said it clearly and plainly. And, and, and it was just so, so there for us. And it's so easy to say, well, you know, Peter dealt with issues way back then. Uh, things are different now. But the truth is, things aren't different now. And often, our distortion of Jesus is just like Peter's. And it actually comes from the exact same three things. I'll repeat them again. Oftentimes, our distortion of Jesus comes from a misreading of the scriptures. Same idea. It's easy to pick the stuff we like and stay there and hold on to that. And the stuff we don't like... Or the stuff that, you know, rattles us and, you know, we, we either avoid or we don't pay much attention to or we simply try to explain it away. And we do this all the times, and I'm going to admit to that myself included. It, some stuff is just difficult. I heard a, a pastor, I, I listened to him about seven years ago, a pastor of a popular church did a series called Jesus is Difficult. And he talked about all these different sayings and all these different teachings that Jesus gave us that sometimes are just tough to swallow. You see, the scary part is that when we do this, when we try to explain things away, when we try to just kind of push things off, I don't think most of us do it at a subconscious level. Most of us don't read a passage and say, yeah, Jesus didn't mean to say that. Or, you know, I don't think Jesus actually meant that. You know, some of us do, and I guess, you know, good, good on you for your honesty, right? But most of us do that, and it's at a subconscious level, and we don't even realize that we're doing this. And so we need to bring our hearts before God and ask him to speak to us when we run into these things. Secondly, much like Peter, it also comes down to our heart's ambition. Um, I also want Jesus to look, act, and be a certain way. Um, an example, I don't always love Jesus' teaching on money could be something that we say. You know, he doesn't want me to simply collect for myself. You know, he doesn't want me to simply just be about my priorities in my house. Like, come on, Jesus. You know, and some of us, we, we find a struggle sometimes with what he would say. And it's for the most part because we want Jesus to bless what we're doing. And we want him to bless our lifestyle. We want him to bless how we think. And sometimes Jesus makes us uncomfortable and he seems a bit extreme at times. And when he says things that convict or that oppose us or the things that we desire, it's, we wrestle with it and it's difficult. Um, thirdly, our, our worldview affects how we see Jesus. We'd be kidding ourselves to think it didn't. You know, it's the world that we're born into. You know, we don't grow up dreaming of a world without Rome like Peter did. Uh, maybe if you're a video gamer, maybe that's your thing, right? But um, most of us don't grow up thinking that way, but we do grow up in a world with a North American distortion, perhaps, of who God is. We do grow up in a consumeristic society, a theology, a word about God, a God who is, you know, one part genie in the bottle, one part therapist, one part slot machine. We said all these things at the beginning of the message, and we can find ourselves running into these distorted images of who Jesus is. And we grow up in this world that sometimes sends mixed messages about who Jesus is. And are we influenced by them? We have to be honest with ourselves. Are we ever influenced by these things? It's so easy for us to get this idea to think that God simply exists for us and for my life and for my country and for my family and for my world and for my comfort and that God is at my beck and call. 
But when all three of these things overlap, when you get a misreading of the scriptures, when you get misguided ambition of the heart, when you get a worldview in a negative way, it's easy to get off course and how we would think about Jesus as well. So, in fact, many scholars, as I was studying this past week, it was amazing how much they addressed these, th- this, this very issue in their commentaries because so many of the scholars were talking about that one of the major issues facing the church right now in North America, past generations and our generation as well, is that we're in danger of making up our own Jesus more and more and more if we're not careful. Try, trying to make him a little bit more like our context and where we are. We're getting away from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as we try to relay North American culture and the culture of the kingdom of God together. And in a lot of ways, when we do that, we end up with this image of Jesus that's a lot more like us than what the scriptures would say. And you know you've made up your image of Jesus. If he's always on your side, if he's always thinking like you, if he's always talking like you, if he's always partial to the same people you're partial to, and he looks like you, And so here's two thoughts at play here that can be true of us in these moments. Either you are just an incredible disciple of Jesus, okay? If (laughs) everything he does is like you, thinks like you, is with you, all that stuff. Either you are an incredible disciple of Jesus, or we also sometimes project our worldview and our own image upon Jesus. There's one or two ways we can go there. Are we ever guilty of doing this? That's a question that we wrestle with this morning, and I hope we do. The question isn't, are we ever off? I don't think that's the question. I think the question is, where could we be off? Where do we need to ask God to search our hearts and reveal to us places where we have gone off course in our view of Jesus? And please, let me say this. This is not meant just to be a guilt trip here this morning. That's not what I'm trying to do. But rather, I, I hope that this talk can be a bit of a warning to us that, you know, we receive, that what we receive in this portion of the scripture, because I don't want ever to hear Jesus say the words to me, get behind me, Satan, as Peter did. You know, I have enough nicknames out there, right? I have enough nicknames out there that are annoying, annoying enough. I don't need to add Satan to the list. Okay? I don't need that to be a part of things that people call me. And I don't want to ever hear Jesus say something like that to me. But how do we make sure that that would never happen? How do we make sure that we're careful not to project our image upon the image of God? Well, here's a couple thoughts I'll just give to us this morning. Uh, the first thought is just to know our limitations. Know your limitations limitation. Recognize our blindness. Recognize your own blindness. Recognize that, yes, I was blind, and now I see. That is true of what Scripture says, but I don't fully see clearly as I should. And I'm not God, and I'm not omniscient, and I don't have all knowledge. The Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, he put it this way, for we know now in part we are not God. No matter how long you follow Jesus, we all still know in part. And so we must be aware of our own limitations, and we must recognize that we don't have it down. And we start from this posture of humility when we go to the scriptures. We don't go to it knowing all the answers, and we try not to go to it with, I've heard this before, and we try not to go to the pages um, with a conclusion already made. But we start from this heart posture of humility and not pride, And we never let ourselves get to the point where we lose the wonder of reading Scripture. Scripture's not a book that we read to finish. We read Scripture because it changes us and it forms us and it shapes us into who Jesus wants us to be. 
So a place to start is to recognize our own limitations, that we do misunderstand at times, and that we ask God to help us. And that's the second part I was going to say that we can do, is we could read the Gospels every day. Open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Grab a chapter, grab a portion, grab a sentence, a paragraph. If you're not sure where to start, open up the book of Matthew and just begin to read. And as you read through the scriptures, pray these words. Pray that Jesus would show you who he is as you read. Pray that Jesus would show you how to follow him in some of the challenges and in some of the areas that he sets out for us in the Gospels. Join a group, join a life group that will help you go through this and you can walk through the scriptures together in community. And what a great thing that is for us is because that keeps us from coming up with our own ideas sometimes and we kind of are there to be accountable to one another. And we, and, and we help one another and we sharpen one another. And if and when you come across a vision of Jesus in the Gospels that does not fit your stereotype, do not try to explain it away. And don't brush it under the rug. Don't ignore it, but wrestle with it. And wrestle with that discomfort for as long as it takes. Sit there and be honest with yourself. And say, this just doesn't feel right to me. This goes against my, my inclination. And ask Jesus in that moment to reveal himself to you. And to reveal his truth to you. And to change your vision of who he is. Because, friends, we need to base our vision of God, we need to base our vision of Jesus not on what culture might say, not on what past generations might say, although they help us and give us so many good things and we need to take those, but we need to base it upon what the Scriptures say, upon what His Word says about Him. And not a misreading of the Scripture, not a misguided ambition, not our worldview, but on what the Gospels say about Him. Jesus, think about it like this. If Peter can be off after two years of being with Jesus 24-7, if he can miss this, then, you know, there's a possibility that we also can at times. And so we need to be careful that what we are looking at is the Scripture, and we need to push off ourselves. And it's fitting that Jesus ends this portion with these words. He says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life or their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. In Mark chapter 8, which is the exact same account of this story, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all share different accounts, and they all add different elements for their audience. Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. Mark was writing to a different audience. And in the exact same account, he mentions that Jesus didn't just call his disciples at this point, but he gathered the crowds around him. And he said these words, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And it's fascinating because this is an open invite. This is something that Jesus says to everyone, regardless of religious standing in those days, regardless of not being one of the religious elite in those days. Jesus gives this opportunity to anyone who would want to follow him. And it's an open invite. And it's an invite just to come as you are. Come just as you are, but he's also saying that as you get to know me, as you get close to me, you're also going to come, but you're also going to have to die to some things in your life. And you're going to have to take up your cross, and you're going to have to follow him. And the cross was a symbol of shame in those days. You know, the cross was for the riffraff of society. The, cro the cross was thought to be for people who were cursed by God, not to people who were loved by God. And yet Jesus says this dying to self, this dying to our desires and our comforts and all that stuff is part of the plan in following him. 
Taking up your cross means that there's a death in following Jesus, meaning that there is stuff that we all have to die to. And so this call to follow Jesus isn't always an easy call, but rather it's a call to lay down my life and take up his. Lay down our lives and take up him. And so at the end of the day, as we come to an end this morning, we all find ourselves in different places this morning. And each of us, I think, in this room wrestles with different questions. And I hope, you, I hope you'll, you'll see it out, and I hope you'll wrestle with them, and I hope you'll continue to stay there. Some of us this morning are wrestling with, the fir- with, with that, first, that second question, who is Jesus? Who do you say he is? Is he the Lord of your life? Do you believe that he is who he said he is? Do you believe that he is the Son of God? Some of us have perhaps found us this morning wrestling with something different. We found ourselves influenced and perhaps listening a little too much to who they say that Jesus is. And who's they? Well, they is what culture says. It's what everything around us says. It's what sometimes TV teachers say. Okay, not all bad, but I'm just saying, right? Sometimes we get a little off the the, the ball here. And perhaps we spent a little too much time focusing and building our identity of Christ on that and not in our own time with the Scriptures leaving our preconceived ideas aside and allowing the pages of Scripture to influence our understanding of who Jesus is. Perhaps we bought into who they say he is more than who Jesus said he was. And we need to be careful of that. Some of us, perhaps, we've realized that we've fallen into wanting to serve a Jesus that, you know, that we approve of and that, that's a little bit easier and that we've created, we've desired. And we, we recognize this morning that perhaps what we need is a refresher in the Gospels. And allow those ancient words to speak to us afresh again this morning. And to have their place of authority in our hearts. To have their place of authority in our lives. And here's the good part for us this morning. Leave good news. The good part is is that Jesus meets us, meets each of us wherever we're at this morning. He meets us there. And wherever we're at, he's also there with us and he loves us and he cares for us and he wants to walk with us and he wants to guide us into all truth remember in this portion peter confessed jesus and it was just this amazing moment it was this amazing experience but he was about to find out that there was a lot left to learn and that there was a lot that he was wrong about when it came to christ but yet jesus still offered the invitation to follow he didn't revoke it he didn't take it away he didn't say that's it peter you blew it see you later have a good one right don't let the door hit you right he didn't he, he didn't go that route but he still gave him this invitation to follow him and to recognize that to get more of him we need to have less of ourselves and so do we trust jesus as the messiah do we trust him even when it doesn't make sense are we good with his plans even if they should contradict our own Friends and church community, I believe as I was studying this past week and as I felt God speaking to me, this passage is so relevant to us in 2018. So relevant to us. Because just like Peter, the baggage and things of our times can be in direct conflict with who Jesus is. And we need to be careful that we distinguish between both of them. Amen? And so may you allow the words of this passage to speak to you however God wants to speak to you this morning. Let me pray for us today. Father, I just thank you for each person in this room. I thank you for your word today. I thank you, Lord, that it has power and authority, Lord, not only to challenge us, but to change us, Lord, and to bring us closer to you. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us at whatever question we wrestle with today, that you would give us illumination, that you would reveal yourself, Lord, and that you would bring us closer to you as a community of people. 
Lord, reveal to us ways in which we project ourselves onto you. And Lord, I pray that in all things, you would give us your truth. And so I pray, Lord, you just give us a hunger, Lord God, for your word, a hunger, Lord God, to hear from you. And Lord, I pray a blessing over each person in this room this morning, that Lord, as we look to you, Lord God, that we would see you as you are, as the scriptures declare. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless. I'll get everyone to stand this morning. I'm going to leave you with a blessing today based on what we talked about in this portion in Matthew. Um, and here it is. In the ancient times, the one who blessed did so by extending hands. If you'd like to receive a blessing this morning, I ask you to do the same. Please extend your hands today. And here it is. Soul Sanctuary, may you rejoice in the fact that Jesus is Lord. May you yield to his will and to his desires. May you rest today in his love in his comfort. May you experience his grace and his forgiveness daily. And may you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, allowing him to move you and transform you as his disciples. Be blessed this week in him. Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you next week on uh, Remembrance Day as we gather together. Have a great week.